Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Eben Hewitt. Eben's the Chief Information Officer of Hyatt Hotels Corporation, a nearly $6 billion revenue hospitality company. He's had that role for a little less than a year. During that time, Eben has driven IT to focus on what he refers to as the brilliant basics, including better reliability, scalability, and speed while improving customer experience at the same time. Prior to his current role, Eben was the Chief Technology Officer of Sabre Hospitality, and before that, was the Chief Technology Officer of Choice Hotels. He's also the author of the book, Technology Strategy Patterns, Architecture as Strategy, published by O'Reilly Media in 2018. I look forward to learning more about his journey as a business and thought leader through this interview. Eben, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. It's great to speak with you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Well, Eben, uh, you are the Chief Information Officer of Hyatt, and I think most people who are uh, listening or watching this interview will be familiar with Hyatt uh, as, as uh, uh, past guests uh, of, of the hotel, for example. But I wonder if you could just take a quick moment and fill in some odds and ends as to the business you're in. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. So uh, Hyatt is in the hospitality business. We've been uh, in this business for about 60 years. And, you know, in my view, it's the greatest hotel company in the world. We have about 1,300 hotels that are in uh, dozens of countries, and we're, we're growing a lot. We've, uh, we've led the industry in organic growth, in fact, uh, for the sixth consecutive year. We're undergoing an asset light transformation, so there's some real estate uh, we're offloading, and that's, that's been helpful in our, in our growth. We have... Uh, Hundreds of properties that have joined our system just in the last five years. The last five years has been a, has been a lot of growth for us. We got Apple Leisure Group uh, last year. We acquired in in 2021 actually, and that's been successfully integrated into our business. That's about 110 resorts that are in Mexico, the Caribbean, and 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 like that. Those are all inclusive uh, resorts. So we've got a lot of like you said, um, iconic brands that that people are familiar with. So we've got. Um, Park Hyatt, luxury brands like that, Grand Hyatt. Uh, the backbone of our business is probably Hyatt Regency, which is a lot of conferences, um, sales, uh, you know, and, and catering uh, group events kind of thing. Uh, the, the the Hyatt Regency just down the street here at the Magnificent Mile has about two thousand rooms. These are these are very large uh, conference hotels, and uh, we really excel at that uh, group business, that conference business. Uh, and then we've got the the all inclusive resorts. So we also have you know finally we have a uh, uh, Hyatt Place and Hyatt House. These are these are sort of select service hotels that cater more to road warriors and more in um, city centers kind of thing. A very interesting uh, point that you made about uh, the organic growth and that you're, you've led the industry for. Did you say six consecutive years? Is That's it right? Yeah. That's really remarkable. May I ask what are some of the reasons that you think you've been so successful relative to the competition on that front? We have a culture that's really rooted in listening, Peter. It really is about empathy. Uh, and understanding what a guest need, what a guest want, and and we really try to understand uh, what what people are looking for, not um, do technology for technology's sake, or not shove something down their throat that they're not looking for. We try and make it easy for the guests, easy for our customers, and uh, make sure that you know we do that by understanding what they really want and need, not by what we want to give them. Um, and so I, I think that that listening has has resulted in doing things that are really impactful and meaningful to people. Second, we have a, a an agile kind of culture, an experimentation kind of culture and I don't mean scrum agile, I mean, you know, we're 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 very clear on 
what are the ways we can experiment that will help us to um, test and learn in the real world in a quick way? And, and then it, we're, we're able to kill stuff uh, if it doesn't work out. Uh, you know, if it doesn't make sense to us, then, then we shut it down. And so listening and, and empathy and then marrying that with that agile kind of experimentation, uh, I think is, is, is a lot of it. That's a great overview. I really appreciate that. What a fascinating uh, a combination of things. And I understand uh, uh, through your explanation how they work together very powerfully. Uh, you, you are the chief information officer of the company, as I mentioned. Take a moment, if you would, to, t- to provide a bit of an overview as to your purview, uh, if you don't mind. So I, I uh, have been here uh, since since last year and broadly uh, at Hyatt. I, you know, I view technology as an enabler of care. Um, I, I, I think that our job in technology is, you know, it's not about quantum dust. It's not about, uh, you know, the, this shiny new thing. We are talking about chat GPT, like everybody to sort of figure out where does this fit, but, uh, we're not going to do that without that kind of listening and experimentation, uh, that, that I talked about earlier. So for us, it really is about me and my role, the CIO role to me, it's about taking that care that, that I think Hyatt is world-class at and scaling that when we're growing so fast, how do we, how do we take that human element and make sure that we're, we're taking care of our guests and our customers and the hoteliers that want to sign up with us to, um, to have technology that makes it easier for them uh, to do the thing that they're trying to do. You know, technology should, should become invisible in some sense. Uh, And, and so, you know, for the guest, that means that they need more seamless solutions they, you know, we do this in a way like uh, with digital compendium. Uh, this is something where you can just, you know, get a QR code and you get everything that, at your fingertips that that the hotel has to offer. Uh, we do this with things like uh, Hotspot. So if you go to the Hyatt Regency Orlando and then you um, log into the Wi-Fi uh, and you go up to the Hyatt Place in Chicago Loop, it puts you on the Wi-Fi. And it kind of feels magic. Like you just, it, 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 you don't have to do anything. So everything we can do to take those roadblocks out of the, the way of our guests and, and our colleagues and our customers, uh, that's kind of at the super high level, how I view my job. But more practically, I, I have several hundred colleagues in my organization, uh, and that's divided up uh, under several leaders that report to me. So first is our CTO. And he heads up uh, enterprise architecture, networking, DevOps, platform operations, data centers, and engineering, that kind of thing. It's a little different view of the the CTO role. Um, And second, there's our CISO. And our chief information security officer runs, uh, you know, cybersecurity includes vulnerability management, threat intelligence, fraud investigation, compliance, risk management, and then security operations and engineering. Third, I have an SVP of field technology. So this is all the technology that runs in the hotels, the property management system that lets you check in and check out, that kind of thing. Uh, It includes the Wi-Fi and the TV and the phones. Then I also have uh, an engineering organization that runs the the central reservation system, our distribution system. It's kind of the the heart of our business in some ways. Uh, Then I've got uh, a leader for enterprise applications that includes all the back office stuff that runs legal, HR, finance, all of those uh, financials and stuff. And then I've got a, a, a great chief of staff uh, who helps keep everything moving. And she really focuses on uh, ensuring the success of the overarching initiatives that that I have. Um, the things that might otherwise fall between the cracks with these leaders, Peter. So if you think of 
security versus you know the enterprise applications versus TVs in the hotels. Those three people might not talk to each other all the time, but there's stuff that I need to happen that cuts across all of those things. So those things are the, are the kind of capabilities like uh, incident management or problem management or vendor management or you know product management, like those kind of those kind of things. And I, I I can't just put that on any one leader, you know, but I need to see them happen. Uh, we've got an operating model. How does work come into the my organization? And then how do we govern it? Uh, what's our set of roadmaps? And then how do we make sure that that it's informed by those capabilities? Uh, that's kind of the the role of that uh, chief of staff uh, for me. In terms of the operating model and and those capabilities and and bringing all that together, for me, I, I'm focused right now on what what you might call the the brilliant basics. You know, how do we have better reliability? How do we have better scalability and and speed? How do we have better customer service and and transparency? You know, this 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 happens a lot where you hear people say, well. I I don't know uh, where all the money and time is going. You know, I thought it was going to cost a million bucks and take six months, and I find out it's three million bucks in two years. Like, what happened? Why is that always going on with IT? You know, I try and be a good steward. Uh, this is millions of dollars of somebody else's money, and and I want to make sure that we're 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 drawing a straight line to the things that we're doing, uh, to the things that will help a colleague or or guest or a customer of ours. That's great. I was really fascinated by your description of the brilliant basics. And you mentioned better reliability, scalability, speed, better customer experience, greater degrees of transparency. What, what are some of the ways in which you achieve that? Um, you know, in your little less than a year now in role, what kinds of activities have you undertaken in order to foster some of what you described there? We got to ask ourselves, are we ever going to do this again? <laughs> uh, and and if so, let's make a template and let's write it down. Um and you know, communicate that to others, and just sort of reuse that. So I try and templatize things to the extent that we can. There's a lot of stuff that we just do over and over. Second, automate everything we can. Uh, there's people that go into the Amazon Web Console and click buttons. That's an anti-pattern. You can't do that. Let's like put it into code because code you can put in the repository, and you could version it, and you can roll it back, and you can like treat it as a first-class citizen. So uh, you know that's important. Next. Uh, I really try and be explicit about the process. One of the, you know, everything's kind of double-edged sword. One of the other aspects of of being at, at a company like Hyatt that is so nurturing of people and so caring and so kind and thoughtful. I mean, there's it's really a great place to work. Um, it means that everybody's really nice, and and so uh, it's tricky sometimes to think people don't want to say no. Uh, and and they also have deep relationships. Uh, they can just say, "Look, I'll just call my buddy Susie, and you know she'll hook me up." And can't you just deploy this thing? And on the one hand, that's great, and I don't want to blow that up, to be sure. And the other hand, I need I need people to um, have the repeatable process and automate it as much as possible. And 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 one of the things I'm really trying to root out is is the the hero culture that that creates when you've got. Post-COVID, really nice company where people stay a long time, deep relationships because everybody's nice. Then it's like, oh, Peter can be the guy for that thing and I'll be the guy for this thing. And then we don't know what each other's doing. And so that's the next part of my approach is to say, how can we make this explicit uh, and give it away? 
I was, I was a Java developer for a long time, and uh, people would say, you know, I'm the one that knows how to deploy the, the website, and I'm not going to tell anybody else how to do it, because then they can never fire me. And I was like, that is the dumbest strategy I ever heard. Uh, and it's like, why don't you just be great at what you do, and then they won't want to fire you, and they'll just put you in charge of more stuff. Uh, the people that espouse that point of view are doing basically the exact same job 15, 17 years later. True story. And the ones that don't think that's the way to be, the ones that think the second I learn something, let me give it away. Let me share it. Let me write it down and put it on the wiki. Let me put it in logic gate. Let me put it somewhere and tell somebody about it so they can do it too. There's another, there's a data aspect to this too, because culturally it's a mindset, Peter. I always try and push to make sure that that it's not just, these are the metrics we had laying around because it looks like data and we had a bar chart and here's a pie chart. And so now you know the state of things, that's your executive dashboard. Those are dangerous because it looks real. It looks meaningful just because someone's showing it to you. It looks like data, it looks meaningful, but it's not particularly interesting. What tells you what really is going on in terms of the health of your business and, and being being able to handle the brilliant basics is mean time to recovery. We will have failures. We know there's going to be failures. When the thing breaks, is it Keystone Cops and everyone just dialing for dollars to get their buddy on the phone and say, what do you think is happening? Let's scratch our heads and look at root cause. Or are you saying, no, You know, we, we know how to get this back up because it's automated. And we know that there's a quarterback on the call who is going to run it. And she may not have the most important title on the call, but it's a practice that she knows how to do to run the incident call. And then uh, the first order of business is stop the patient bleeding, like get the patient breathing again. And then we'll figure out root cause. Let's not delete all the log data so that we can do a good root cause analysis. And then we have a meeting every time. And the person knows to schedule it and when to schedule it. And they hold the meeting and they run through the list of what happened here and do that in a blameless way. That's what I'm talking about, Peter, when I say, Brilliant basics. It's like, just let's get really good at that. Michael yeah. Jordan would go in and practice layups hours a day, practicing layups, practicing layups. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a great, great overview. I appreciate that. I know from our past conversations, as we've discussed the strategy that you're implementing, one of the key aspects of that is replacement of the central reservation system, which needless to say is a pretty uh, uh, important strategic system. Uh, revenue is connected to it. Um, how have you gone about the process of of developing the plan to do so, uh, given the importance of that of that system? If you think about a central reservation system in a hotel, um, this is what does all of the availability rates and in inventory. So if you see a price on Expedia or on Booking.com uh, or on the, the the global distribution system or American Express Travel, any any of the places where you can book travel, that that data, that price and that availability came from a CRS, knowing the data and where it flows, what are all those arrows and making sure that we're spending the time to do the research to know that if we pull this out here, or we turn this off here, what the downstream impact is that we still have the data flowing where it needs to go. Uh, that understanding those data flows is number one. Number two is the human use cases that how, how do people actually use this system? Not how do we think we we use it, but what what really is is the set of use cases that people rely on? That will mean that you know we're we're able to understand the implications of of our choices. So so what I'm doing is is I'm taking a little bit of a different approach. I know some companies 
somebody's pounding their fist saying, we need this by December 31st because they think some magical thing happens. And what, what we need to be able to do in my mind is, is measure twice and cut once. I'm going to very thoughtfully plan this, making sure that you, it's, as long as people feel heard and listened to and, and that they're included in part of that long discovery process of measure twice and cut once, create a blueprint. I don't want any hands on keyboard before I got a pretty good picture that we can poke at because you know, we all know it's much cheaper to find those those concerns uh, earlier on. Get people on your team that have been there, done that, uh, and 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 they can kind of anticipate some of some of the some of the risks, some of the things that will go wrong. Like uh, I was introduced to this idea of the pre mortem. Look, we have a big project in front of us. Here's some people that are stakeholders in it that have some knowledge of what's going on. Let's do an exercise for a little while to imagine the kinds of things that we think could go wrong based on our experience or our reading or having been there before. A lot of times technical people tend to just look at the tools. Well, the problem is you didn't buy me, you know, Datadog for Christmas, so I can't do anything. That's not good enough. You know, we need to look across people and process and technology and then imagine what are the bad things that could befall us across all those categories. You know, we need to be numerate and understand the data flows and have a clear plan. And and we need to talk about nuts and bolts. Very interesting. Another thing you've spoken about is the need for to develop better communications, uh, noting that the need to improve the signal to noise ratio uh, as an organization like yours works with your colleagues across your organization. Um, what are some of the methods that have been best at doing that from your perspective? So... Every day, what, one of the things I think about is, is how do we improve our signal-to-noise ratio? How do we communicate effectively, set clear expectations? And you know, if a problem presents itself, we can just react to that and, and solve that once and, and then context switch and, and wait for that problem to crop up again. Or we can look at it and, and say, what category is this problem in? And can I just kind of solve for the whole category? Sometimes that's not harder. Or, or too much harder anyway. There's a lot of data in the system, and so some of it's noise. It's 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 not meaningful. It doesn't contribute to you know a, a pattern or an understanding or an explanation. And the signal is that stuff that that is uh, meaningful and real, uh, it, locked up in that, that data that tells you the story. There's this there's this great uh, there's social scientist from the 1960s named Melvin Conway, and he had this observation that came to be known as Conway's law, and it's this. Organizations that design systems are constrained to design systems that reflect the communication structures of those organizations. Basically, that's a big, long sentence. And what it means is your architecture will, will look like your organization is structured. Your software will talk to each other the way that the humans in your organization talk to each other. If you've got a silo here, you're going to have a silo architecture. If you've got a monolith here, you're going to have a monolith here. It's a bunch of boxes and arrows that looks like your chart. What that means is that designing an organization using some of the properties uh, that we would as architects use to design a great system, what are those properties? We, we want it to be scalable. We want it to be available. We want it to be resilient. We want it to be secure and safe. We want it to be highly performant. We want it to have some observability and manageability. So if you think about those properties when you're designing your org chart, uh, that helps all of the communication. That helps everybody to uh, 
understand the shortest route to get their thing done. It makes sure that people are able to know with confidence that I've sent this message, that message has been received, and and now I, you know, the thing will happen. If you go into a restaurant and and order the tacos, you know, your interface is is the menu. And the waiter handles it, and you don't need to get back in the kitchen. You get your tacos. I've seen a lot of organizations that that kind of uh, don't present a good API to the world because because they don't want to be order takers. Um, well, we're a service organization, and, and it's not being an order taker. If if we said to finance, we got to close the books because, you know, socks controls. You can collaborate with people, uh, even if you're a service organization. And that's a matter of communicating to the broader powers that be, where is the place that you can make the most impact in being up front in the conversation so that the broad contours of of the work that will get done in the next year is influenced by you. That's the strategy part. Yeah, some of the work on the ground might then look like an order taker. Here's a ticket or I need this system or we got to add this feature, make all the buttons blue. But it won't feel like order taking and it won't actually be that because we're in the business to serve people. That's, that's what we're doing. I know that you've also had a focus in developing a pipeline to universities. Talk a bit about those partnerships and uh, the value you've derived from them. I'm thinking about how do how do I encourage my leaders to think bigger? One of the ways I try and do that is creating that strong relationship with universities. Like I was um, happy to be a, a guest lecturer at DePaul uh, here in downtown Chicago uh, or at um the Harvard uh, Graduate School Extension, where they they teach my book called Technology Strategy Patterns. Um, happy to happy to be working with students from Morehouse uh, in Atlanta. So one of the things we did is is uh, to to kind of keep this fresh thinking and and a pipeline of new talent and build a resilient organization. Is is we hosted a hackathon for um, black technology students. Um, so this was this was great because Morehouse, of course, is a historically black uh, college university, and and the winning team is going to show like here's here's this thing we made, and and for me, I, I'm just going to be tickled to to see their work, but but more importantly, uh, to meet them and understand how they think and introduce them to Hyatt. So and what's wonderful about it, and and that that's honestly one of the one of the best parts of my job uh, in my mind, Peter. Well, Evan, yours is an industry that went through uh, its toughest time ever uh, during the early portion of the pandemic and one of the industries uh, among all that was hit most uh, consequentially. I, I realize it was a difficult time for, for your company, though the early part of the pandemic obviously predates your, your uh, time with the organization. You've been focused more on rebuilding that organization. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on uh, those trials and also the methods you've used in rebuilding the organization uh, since your arrival? You know, COVID hurt this industry really, really badly. And a lot of hospitality companies are are, are still recovering uh, in some way. Uh, it's been a great year. We've actually had a record year at Hyatt. It's been our best year ever, which is fantastic. Uh, but, you know, some people who were, you know, they're and they're 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 good people. They were smart people. They had a lot of institutional knowledge. They said, "I don't know when this industry's coming back." You know, a couple of years ago, and and we lost a lot of folks. And and when revenue went to nothing and and occupancy went to nothing, then a lot of people got laid off. And so, how how I can rebuild this organization and 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 make the organization itself as resilient as the systems are, uh, you know, if you will, it's kind of a reflection of Conway's law, I guess, uh, there. 
that that's another front of mind thing for me. I think it's important to to care for the people and 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 they will they will care for the, for the customers. Yeah. Very interesting. You've also talked about the necessity to drive uh, what you call human-centered technology. And there are a variety of ways already in our conversation that you've highlighted the necessity to think about, to be empathetic, great listeners, uh, contemplate and drive better customer experience. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the the how in in terms of uh, developing a human-centered technology. Yeah, wow, that's great. Um, I mean, because there are things that we're doing that are you know try to be human centered um but you know so i mentioned hotspot where you can seamlessly connect to the internet you know in 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 a lot of our hotels um you know we have another one called magic link so this is an example of what you're talking about with the the human centered design if people are presented a problem it people tend to want to solve that problem but if we only do that then we're just reactive and if we're just reactive then we become passive that can tamper creativity. Uh, it can tamper proactivity. The magic link is 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 a great kind of answer to 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 this reactive thing I'm talking about. So if you say, "Well, we have a ton of tickets that are about password resets, and we got to hire more people to handle that," uh, you know, we can do that. Let's get really hardcore about uh, the the password structure we require. Uh, so that no one can brute force and guess the passwords. These are all just accepting the problem as given and then responding to the problem only. What I think is cool about the Magic Link project is that it just says, what does the world look like if we didn't have that problem? If we took passwords out of the picture, what would the world look like? What other good things would have to be true if we didn't have any of these problems? What we did then is is uh, you don't have to log in. You don't have there isn't a password. Uh, every time you just get a, a new link sent to your email and you click it and that's yours. It, it just takes a whole ton of stuff off the table that we have to maintain and manage and hire for and deal with. It takes a whole bunch of cognitive load out of the system. It's easier for our guests and our colleagues, and it's a way of looking at problems that says, have we really thought about what the actual necessity is here, what the, the rock hard foundation truth is, because a lot of times we haven't. If if you ask anyone on the street, did you have a childhood? They wouldn't even know what you were talking about. They'd say, well, yeah, every human in the history of earth has had a childhood. In fact, that's not true. Jean-Jacques Rousseau invented the modern idea of childhood in his book called Emile in 1762. Before that, there were no childhoods. And I say that because it's, uh, in my mind, similar to we used to know for certain that the earth was flat. We used to know for certain that the sun revolved around the earth. It's not the stuff you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's the stuff you know for certain that just ain't so. And that gets attributed to Mark Twain. It was actually somebody else. But <laughs> but, the, but those really are the, 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 the kind of ways of approaching our work that then say, if you marry that with empathy, listening, human-centered design, not starting with the technology, but instead thinking, I've got a human being in front of me. What do they want? What is she trying to do? What's in her way? How can I help this person? And forget about the technology completely. Then what you're doing is is you now shift it from an output-oriented mindset to an outcome-oriented mindset. This is very important to us here at Hyatt. 
I talk about this in the technology strategy patterns book too. We're doing this every day in different ways. One thing is we say, um, okay, if I type up a Word document for you or an Excel spreadsheet or a PowerPoint and, and send that to you, I, you know, I've done the work. A document might be an output, but it's not an outcome. An outcome is specifically a change in human behavior. You don't have to remember your password or make a password or fit the password rules or any, no passwords. You're going to click this link and it's going to seamlessly take you there. That's being human-centered. That's not being technology-centered. This stuff is supposed to exist to help us. Uh, and uh, sometimes that gets turned around and we, and we get in service of it if we if we start with the technology. That's interesting. Very interesting. Well, I, I must say this is the first time that uh, Rousseau and Emile have, have, uh, have been mentioned in, in an interview and in some ways befitting somebody who has both a Bachelor of Fine Arts and an MA in Literary, literary Theory. Uh, how did somebody with a background uh, such as that educationally find their way into technology? And to what extent has that been a secret weapon of yours, perhaps? Uh, well, that's a that's a, that's a fun question. Yeah, I used to get early in my career, I got asked this a lot. You don't have a, a computer science degree or a tech background. How did you get get to do this job? Uh, but what I did know, what I did learn in graduate school is is a few things. Number one, I, I learned. It sounds like a cliche. I learned how to learn. Uh, you know, I knew how to read massive volumes of dense, hard things and see the important pattern and figure it out quickly and then figure out how to apply it and get a perspective on it. That turns out to be very similar to uh, what like a consultant needs to do. You know, if you're a Bain, McKinsey, BCG, you know, this kind of consultant, you massive volume of data, quickly get a smart perspective on it that's informed. Uh, that's a skill that everybody could use. And and so that that helped me. But I learned how to be a Linux administrator, how to be a data, database administrator, be a web programmer, be a Java developer. I did all those jobs. I started out on the help desk. I started out just answering phone calls about how to you know reset your password and, and why is the thing down? Uh, knowing the pain, the life experience, the knowing what people need to know and how much they need to learn and how much they need to constantly relearn as it, as it kind of moved up, uh, from the help desk to programming, database, and architecture, and, and then leadership, I think it helps me keep it real with people. I can talk to them, and they they know that, you know, I I know what PS minus AUX does on the Linux command line. You know, they can talk to me uh, in real terms. And so, one of the things that that I've talked about in a, in a different book, the semantic uh, software design book, it's this idea of what is the semantic real estate. What is the set of signs that work together? There's a thing called a hotel. What is that? We might think we know, but then there's Airbnb. And is that a hotel or no, that's different. Is it a resort? Is it all inclusive? Is that the same? Where do we draw these lines? And how do we think of how we talk about our structures? Because that's what gets written into a design document that gets written into code that becomes a deployable artifact. And if you do that wrong, you've got a management nightmare on your hand, or you've got a bunch of stuff that goes down together with, with things that, that it shouldn't go down, or you have to deploy two terabytes of stuff when maybe you only changed 10K of stuff. So thinking about things in terms of the semantics made me a much better designer. Mm -hmm. And it made me quickly be able to talk about these terms with architects and, and, and say, this is how we're going to design software. Here's my here's my kooky theory, Peter. We're living under a false metaphor. In 1968, there was a conference in Germany where really clever people got together and said, look, we need to talk about 
the state of computing. What's happening here? They were looking for a way to think about their industry. They were looking for a way to think about their product. From this one conference, really smart, really accomplished people say, it's like a factory and it's like a building and that means architecture. Those three words then became the way that we thought about our field. We thought there was a factory. And so we're going to create a factory to recreate this component. The problem with that is obvious. The problem with the metaphor of architecture is that we don't have commodity stuff like steel and glass and concrete, and we don't have a known clear end of the system. Your building envelope, your real estate, the deed that you own, it's semantics. It's all words that get attached as labels to concepts, and those concepts become software. My assertion is lose the architecture metaphor, lose the factory metaphor. We're not making widgets. We need to embrace this semantic idea. The semiotics of software is, is the way to be successful at, at designing it. If you do that with a human focus, a human-centric view, and think of the technology second to serve it, you'll do amazing. That's a, a great, great place to, to close it out, Evan. I really appreciate a, a very thought-provoking and thoughtful conversation throughout this. I greatly appreciate you taking time with me, sharing perspectives about your tenure as Chief Information Officer of Hyatt, but some of your broader philosophy beyond that. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Peter, thank you so much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here and great to see you again.